2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Richard Barbuto, author of the book New York's War of 1812, Politics, Society, and Combat. Rich, welcome to the New Books Network. Glad to be here, Mark. Oh, we're glad to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Oh, well, let's see. I was uh, born and raised in uh, western New York, right on Lake Erie. So we had the legacy of the Battle of Lake Erie uh, uh, prominent at the time. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a soldier, so I went off to West Point, spent the four years there, graduated in 1971. Uh, Spent the next 23 years as an armor officer, but towards the end of my career, I had an opportunity Uh, I was selected to attend the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And after completing the course, I was asked to stay on as a history instructor to teach military history. And I also started a Ph.D. program at the time. Uh, So as I'm preparing to write a dissertation and teaching Army majors... Uh, I decided to do the dissertation on uh, an area uh, close by to where I was brought up, uh, the Niagara Frontier, Niagara River, which uh, connects Lake Erie with Lake Ontario. Interestingly, on the river, there are three reconstructed forts uh, heralding back to the days of the War of 1812. There's Fort Erie and Fort George on the Canadian side and Fort Niagara on the American side. And I had visited each of these, and in doing so, I came across the uh, the battlefields, uh, none of which are, are kept in pristine condition. They've all been uh, urbanized. But I did more uh, digging into this all. And I remembered back from my West Point days that we were taught that the cadet gray uniforms we wore uh, were in commemoration of Winfield Scott's victory at the Battle of Chippewa in 1814. So there was a connection there. So in my dissertation, I chose to, uh, well, it ended up as a book called Niagara 1814, America uh, Invades Canada. And I amassed a uh, uh, quite a bit of research materials, as you might imagine. It uh, occupies, I'd say, about uh, three file cabinets in my office. Um, So this was published in the year 2000, Niagara 1814 was. Uh, I was leaving the the service at that time. Uh, I stayed on as a civilian instructor in the Department of Military History, and ultimately I was the deputy director of that department. And during that time, uh, with all these research materials, I cranked out another couple books, several articles. I reviewed books on the War of 1812. And I came to the conclusion that New York State lay at the very center of the war, not only the geographical center, but the strategic center. Everything that America wanted to accomplish in a war that Congress had declared in 1812 centered on uh, the state. And, of course, uh, New York City was the largest port at the time and uh, had to be defended. So as I dug further, uh, I came to uh, I came to realize that the story of New York State's centrality in the war had never been told. People wrote quite a bit about the Battle of New Orleans, which which happens after the peace treaties negotiated. Uh, there's an awful lot of wonderful books, scholarly and popular books on the war in the Chesapeake. and there are, books about the battles in and around New York State. But no previous work had integrated this battlefield activity with the naval activity on Lake Ontario and Lake Champlain. No one had integrated the state and federal politics that forced the operations uh, in the direction that they took. And no one had written extensively on how New York's society uh, had changed during the, the course of the war. So I set about doing that. Further, I noted that in the uh, books on battles of the war, uh, Chrysler's Field, Shadowgate, Battle Plattsburgh, uh, all the battles on the Niagara frontier and the raids on uh, the cities or in the villages on Lake Ontario the books tended to minimize the participation of the militia. And where the militia, the state militia, was uh, part of the uh, program, the judgment was that the militia had underperformed. And in doing so, the government couldn't depend on them and had to depend on regulars, and that delayed the entire war effort. Well, I found out my studies... uh, on the Battle of uh, the Siege of Fort Erie in 1814, that the militia had played a very important role in uh, basically reinforcing the garrison and and, uh, forcing the end of the siege. So I spent a couple weeks at the uh, New York State uh, Archives and the State Library, and I discovered that the militia records in the archives uh, many of them had been destroyed in a fire in uh, the early uh, 1900s. And uh, the ones that had survived, an archivist decades later, had destroyed them uh, to make room for new material as it was coming out of the state government. But some of the governor's papers uh, had been published before the Albany fire, and I mined them for the details of what the militia organization was, how it was put together, how it was officered, uh, and how it participated in, in the war. That was a revelation to me, uh, that the state's efforts in working with the federal government uh, were, so, were so important to uh, pushing the, the war effort. And I discovered further that Governor Daniel Tompkins who's virtually unknown even in New York State, although he was vice president of the United States for eight years following his governorship, uh, he had been a key person in organizing and working with the federal government to push the, the war effort. Daniel Tompkins embraced the war uh, it was called Mr. Madison's War, but Tompkins was walking side by side with President Madison through the entire thing. And and, and now I'm fascinated with this all because I've stumbled upon uh, evidence that would help me answer the question: What was New York's role as a state uh, in pursuing the War of 1812?
2: It's really surprising that we haven't seen a study like this until now, because and this is one of the things I you know, it comes across not just in your book, but you see referenced in, in, you know, studies of the era about how there was a downplaying of the role of professional military. There was an emphasis upon state militias. It really does seem to be this, this you know, grossly underexplored subject, considering the role that was expected of the militia in, in 1812, as well as the role that it ended up playing.
1: Well, exactly. Uh, the militia organization... In New York was just huge. Uh, it was it was larger than regular army. So Daniel Tompkins as commander-in- chief of the militia, could call forth more soldiers uh, than could President Madison and And you're right about uh, the state studies. there have been studies of uh, North Carolina. Uh, New England, uh, Kentucky in particular, and Pennsylvania, there have been state studies, Pennsylvania in the War of 1812, for example. Uh, But even these studies didn't integrate the political and the social and the military uh, as well as as might have, probably because there are no major battles fought in Pennsylvania or North Carolina or, or, or Kentucky. So while those states made a contribution to the war effort, they weren't central to it. So I've always been surprised, uh, uh, or I became surprised during my research, that New York's uh, efforts in the war had, uh, had been completely neglected. So you might say I tried to, uh, uh, to address that uh, shortfall in the scholarship. Some of the subjects I cover in this book include uh, all of the activities and contributions of the state government and the state militia to the war effort, which, which were which were significant. The Iroquois nation had pretty well been shattered after the American Revolution, with a lot of the Iroquois uh, moving into, into Canada. But I wanted to capture the Iroquois participation in the war and I discovered that uh, there was a large contingent of Iroquois that were supporting the American war effort, and this brought them into contact with the other Iroquois on the other side of the border, and it uh, the the uh, internecine uh, conflict became uh, became fairly brutal. I discovered that New York's commerce, you know, New York City is the largest city by that time; it's the largest port. It's producing one-third of all the uh, customs duties that are uh, going into the federal treasury. I also discovered that the federal uh, treasury income revenues was 90% customs duties. So New York City was key to keeping the federal government running. And when the war is declared, uh, there is no more... uh, commerce with uh, any of the British Empire, and smuggling just soars, particularly around uh, Lake Champlain. Because the people on the St. Lawrence River and Lake Champlain, their trading partner wasn't New York City. They couldn't get there. Their trading partner was Montreal and Quebec. So basically, James Madison had shut down trade uh, in, in northern New York. I talk about privateering. These are commercial vessels that are uh, chartered by the federal government uh, to attack British vessels, commerce vessels, on the high seas. And there are hundreds of these privateers outfitted because a commercial captain uh, can mount a couple guns on a a ship, turn a commercial ship into a warship, capture enemy cargoes, bring them into an American port, and get to keep half the value of the ship and the cargo. So this is free enterprise, free market uh, uh, in wartime, and it was perfectly legal. I talk about the party politics not only nationally but but also in new york state because the federalist party which opposed the republican party now the republican party is not the republican party of today of course these are the followers of jefferson they call themselves republicans later on uh... uh... historians will call them democratic republicans but at the time they never used that term they were they were republicans The Federalists became the anti-war movement, and the anti-war movement was was bitter. There was certainly draft evasion, but what's worse than that, in the state legislature, uh, the assembly, which which is uh, analogous to the House of Representatives, the state assembly controls the purse strings, and during the course of the war, the assembly for two years was under control of the Federalists. And this, this... hampered uh, New York State's efforts. So I I do a deep dive into that and figuring out just what the effect of of this anti-war movement was when you had the whole opposition party was also opposed to the war. Now there's another topic that that just isn't covered in the scholarship anywhere, and that's the cooperation between the federal government and the state government in war-making. The Constitution expected, and, and the state governors expected, that in the case of war or insurrection, that the federal government and the state governments would cooperate in, in the military side of, of the affairs. But this would be the first foreign war conducted by the United States, and it's the first time that this federal and state cooperation would be would be called upon, depended upon, to push the war effort. Now, we know that in New England, the the governors there refused to allow their militia to participate in the war. But again, Daniel Tompkins embraced the war, and he uh, mobilized the the militia and rotated troops uh, for 90 days at a time to defend New York City and the the boundary of New York State uh, for the two and a half years of the war. And that that, that was a considerable accomplishment.
2: It, Tompkins, also, oh, go ahead. Yes, please. I was going to say, Tompkins really does emerge as the central protagonist, if you will, of your book. And I was wondering if you could maybe give us just a brief bit of background as to who he was and what did he bring to the governorship during the war in terms of his abilities, his uh, weaknesses, and so forth.
1: Good. Uh, Tompkins is born during the American Revolution in Westchester County, which is directly north of New York City. And it's a no man's land. The British are in New York City occupying it for the duration of the Revolution. And George Washington's army is in New Jersey and uh, uh, in Westchester County, the highlands of New York, uh, to keep the British penned in. So Tompkins' dad, uh, he's a farmer, he's a patriot, uh, but he takes the family during the war because it is a no man's land. he moves up to, to Duchess County and after the war he returns. Well, Daniel Tompkins moves to New York City. He's the uh, valedictorian of his class at Columbia, uh, becomes a lawyer, gets himself involved in politics, and eventually uh, DeWitt Clinton and and others uh, nominate him for the governorship to take it away from another Republican, Morgan Lewis, Governor Lewis. And when Tompkins is elected... He's the first governor of New York State that was not the, uh, uh, the sign of an aristocratic family, who was not uh, fabulously wealthy as previous governors had been. He was very much a person of the people. He was, uh, took an anti-slavery uh, uh, position because there were slaves still in New York State, Eventually, he would be key to to eliminating slavery in the state. Uh, And he came to the governorship at the same time as the Chesapeake Affair, uh, in which the British had fired upon an American warship, killing uh, sailors, wounding sailors, uh, and starting a, a cry for war that, that Thomas Jefferson uh, chose to ignore. But nonetheless, at that point there in 1807, it pushes the uh, federal government towards uh, on a path that would lead to war. Now, Jefferson has an embargo, which is uh, ultimately a failure. And when James Madison takes office, now uh, Madison and the rest of the Republicans decide that uh, the only way to redress our, our differences with Britain is, is to go to war. And that's where Tompkins comes in, uh, and he prepares the state for this war that would not take place until five years after he had been uh, had been governor.
2: That's actually one of the things I thought was really fascinating to think about, which is that it, the, I can't think of a war in American history where the uh, United States has had more opportunity to prepare, to to uh, to to, uh, you know, to you know to rearm, to position, to train, and, and as you explain in your book, you know, Tompkins really you know did everything he could within the limits of his position to to you know get his state ready for war from eighteen oh seven onward.
1: Uh, exactly, uh, and interestingly enough, if you were to read the other state studies uh, that were written. Virtually no other state prepared itself for war uh, because preparation was was tremendously expensive, Uh, but Tompkins did. He he stood out among all the governors in the pre-war period. One of the things he did was to maintain a full militia organization, uh, and he expanded it as the population expanded. Therefore, uh, every county had a regiment made up of uh, eight or nine companies. He uh, integrated volunteer companies into the state, the common militia organization. These volunteer companies were were uh, young men, uh, men of means who could afford their own uniforms, and in, in, in the cavalry they could afford their own horses, uh, and they trained on their own. Uh, as a social organization, as a means of upward uh, social uh, and political mobility. But these companies were scattered throughout the state, and Tompkins was key in integrating these volunteer companies in with the common militia. He also chartered exempt units. Uh, You had to serve in the militia if you were a a free person, a a white person, between uh, 18 and 45. And that was... uh, over 100,000, well, well over 100,000 persons in the common militia. But there were people who were exempt from militia service college students, uh, certain uh, uh, government officials, people who had served in the revolution, people older than 45. And as the country uh, drifts towards war, these people want to contribute to the war effort, but they're not members of the common militia. So they become, uh, Tompkins would call them, exempt units, companies in a neighborhood that were uh, put together by persons exempt from military service. So they did this as a patriotic gesture. Now, they would be the, as the people of a village or city went off to war, it's these exempt units that would do the law enforcement and basically the uh, uh, uh keeping society together for the duration of the war, Tompkins charted them so that they would agree to serve anywhere in the state so he could move these companies around. Now, the big thing Tompkins did was to acquire weapons. Now, the militia law at the time required a member of the militia to own his own musket uh, and, and cartridge box and other accoutrements, uh, but the reality was only about one in five uh, Americans New Yorkers uh, even though they own their own farm or own their own business uh, actually owned a, a musket that would be capable of military service so the concept that every American on the on the frontier owned a musket or, or wherever that that's utterly false. Tompkins, can, can you imagine a situation where people were were required to own weapons Uh Tompkins then contracted uh, uh, with weapons manufacturers to purchase weapons by the thousands. So he spent state funds, acquired muskets, put them into armories and arsenals, and then he made new arsenals closer to the borders with Canada. So instead of having all the weapons in Albany and New York City, now they're scattered pretty much along the frontier. So in the case of war, militiamen would be uh, mobilized, would pass through one of these armories, pick up their weapons there, and then continue the march to the frontier. Uh, No other state did anything like that. Uh, He also, in, in preparation for war, understood that New York City was key. Well, of course, the people in New York City understood that they would be a target of, of British attack because they had been during the American Revolution. In 1776, Britain sends a massive armada, uh, drives George Washington out of New York City, and occupies the city for the course of the Revolution. There's two major fires in the city that destroy about 25% of the uh, of the structures in the city, at the end of the war, the Tories in New York uh, relocate to uh, to Canada. So the people of New York City had it within their memory of what British occupation was was like, and they did not want that to happen again. So Tompkins forms a board of fortification in the state. Dewitt Clinton, uh, who's the mayor of New York, is is in charge of the board. They uh, work with the federal government, the engineers that are being produced by West Point, uh, and they start fortifying uh, the, harbor, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the harbor in the harbor New York City, uh, but also construct forts on the East River and on um, uh, the Hudson River. Now, what they needed to do in this cooperation with the federal government is they needed to turn over control of the harbor islands to the federal government. So now Ellis Island, uh, Bedloe's Island, which is now Liberty Island, uh, and Governors Island are, are turned over to federal control, and uh, the state and the federal government build forts on Staten Island and on those uh, those islands. If you were to go to New York Harbor today and uh, take the Staten Island ferry or, or go to Liberty Island, you would see three of the forts that were built. During this period and still exists today, there's Castle Williams on uh, on Governor's Island. If you were to go were to go to Battery Park, you would see Castle Clinton. It's a round stone structure. Uh, uh, it is now in Battery Park. At the time of the war, it was on a little island uh, connected to Lower Manhattan with a causeway. Uh, it eventually became the predecessor of Ellis Island. That was the place where immigrants would would come in into uh, the country before Ellis Island was opened up. And if you were to walk through the Statue of Liberty to get inside of it, you would see that the Statue of Liberty is built on a pedestal, and the pedestal is built on a stone structure, and that structure is Fort Wood, and it was constructed during these uh, pre-war years. So a lot of the fortification in New York City. Uh, Was started, what, 200 years ago and exists to this day. So, Tompkins, you're right, Tompkins is absolutely central to preparing the state for war.
2: I was really fascinated also by how those preparations played out when the war begins, which is something that Tompkins really doesn't have a say over. The war is declared in the summer of 1812, and there's this expectation for immediate campaigning. And this gets to, you reference the expectations that this was going to be an easy war. Uh, you, you, you quote the the famous saying, I can't remember who it was who, that Montreal could be captured basically by having some militia just walk up to it and, and, and you know, <laughs> just basically let it surrender to them. And, and and you would think that on the surface that all these preparations that Tompkins made would have facilitated that end. And yet, as you describe, the initial fighting in 1812 does not go very well for the uh, United States, and in particular in the New York region.
1: Well, Mark, that's exactly right. What what Tonkin's could do is provide manpower through the, through the militia, and he does that throughout the war. He rotates militiamen through 90 days at a time on the frontier and in New York City. Uh, but the Constitution does not uh, – uh, it, it is not legal for a federal official or a state official to order a militiaman to serve outside of the United States. So Tompkins could bring the militia right up to the border, but nobody could order those militiamen to cross that border unless they volunteered to do so. And once they volunteered to do so, they actually could uh, uh, could walk back. They could say, I'm, I'm heading back to the United States, and that would have been perfectly legal. And militiamen tended to do that. Uh, at the Battle of Queenston Heights on the Niagara, uh, on the Niagara River, uh, The American commander, who's a uh, Stephen Van Rensselaer, uh, who is a major general of the militia, he has over 4,000 troops in his command. He has enough boats to bring over uh, a few hundred people at a time. He invades uh, Canada, crossing the river, and as the boats return to pick up the next load, they're carrying wounded uh, uh, soldiers. And so the militiamen who are waiting to cross the river see these wounded persons being evacuated from the boats, and frankly, they, they look at one another and they decide right then and there that they're going to maintain their constitutional right of not crossing a border. And so ultimately, only about 600 militiamen will actually cross into Canada on that day, even though there were 4,000 available. Uh, So at that point there, uh, President Madison and uh, the federal generals realized they can't depend on the militia uh, to carry the war into Canada.
0: drmeals.com slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: You mentioned uh, throughout the book, and some of you've already talked about at the beginning of the podcast about how you uh, how, how that bias against the militia has really you know infected our interpretation of their role. And I, I think also about how you mentioned Winfield Scott has this lifelong bias towards the militia that uh, appears in his memoirs that. He, you know, shapes a lot of his attitude towards, you know, military operations the rest of his career. And, and how, it, how, that, how does this then end up, you know, altering strategic uh, considerations going into, say, 1813? I mean, to what degree do they now have to start factoring this in or do they still hope that they can get enough of the volunteers to uh, participate in projected invasions of Montreal or uh, other excursions across the Canadian border?
1: Well, again, that was that became the strategic uh, uh, problem of the war, uh, manpower, because the regular army was never large enough uh, to capture any significant uh, uh, target, Montreal or Quebec. On the other side, in fact, they they never reached the the walls of Montreal at all. <clears throat> the the conflict. Uh, between the regular army and the militia, actually found its birth in the American Revolution, where George Washington, among others, realized he could not depend upon militia. So, this is a bias in the regular army carried forward uh, to the War of 1812. <clears throat> and militia men were, were uh, very protective of their own rights uh, to stay within the state, certainly. And interestingly, the the officers, and the book is peppered with uh, examples, militia officers and regular officers coming into conflict to include duels, which is is kind of rich on the part of the regular army because most of the officers now in the regular army uh, had only been commissioned officers for for a few months before the Battle of uh, Queenston Heights, for example, and they had grown up in their state militias. But now they assume the bias of the regular army in uh, denigrating uh, the militia. The second major conflict in, in using the militia is that these militiamen, many of them had voted Federalist. Many of them were very much anti-war. So they might evade the draft. But even if they uh, did their, their their duty and showed up for the draft and were mobilized, they wouldn't leave the state but also the constant murmuring uh, uh, among the the soldiers the anti the anti-war element or the federal element uh, destroyed well it kept the militia from ever being a cohesive force so on the battlefield the militia was just extremely brittle the first time the British would open fire, the militia might fire back once, but that was, that was the end of it. They would not go forward, uh, and a lot of times they would just uh, uh, evade uh, uh, fighting. They would uh, malinger. They would uh, fall back in the ranks and uh, hide from their sergeants, uh, and that really crippled uh, the militia. Now, where they, they stood in the front lines and fought well, Uh, At Plattsburgh, there's evidence of it, and in defending the villages along the coast of Lake Ontario, uh, they fought fairly well. And of course, in the siege of uh, of Fort Erie, they fought uh, magnificently, standing toe-to-toe with British regulars. But those cases are exceptions to a general rule of the militia not wanting to participate in the war wholeheartedly.
2: There's another aspect also that we should probably mention, and that's uh, the fact that, you know, the battles were, as is often the case in war, the exception rather than the rule. And when they weren't fighting or preparing to fight, they were, you know, on they they were on patrol. They were on guard duty, and as you explained, you're you're talking about New York winters. <laughs> and <from> what you <laughs> describe it was not pleasant at all, and the monotony of, of expecting a, an attack that they didn't know whether it was going to come that that had to have been really wearing on a lot of their you know commitment to this war and their 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 desire to serve in it.
1: Well, I think you've got that exactly right, and I try to uh, uh, point that out of what the militiaman is doing. He's leaving his farm, uh, and so the farm work is is being turned over to the spouse and and the children. So they're maintaining the farm while he's spending 90 days away at places bleak places like Sackett's Harbor or or Plattsburgh or or Buffalo. And uh, a lot of this duty is in just terrible weather. Well, the state tried to build barracks but couldn't keep up. Uh, to put every soldier in a barracks. So in the beginning of the war, in particular, the militiamen are serving, but they're living in tents during during winter uh, uh, weather conditions. If you could imagine, you know, Plattsburgh in winter or Buffalo in winter. So exactly right. Now the what made that matter even worse is that the federal government quickly ran out of money. So that these militiamen coming off of 90-day service who were supposed to collect their pay, there was no pay to give them. So they would return to the farm, and they would have to get the farm up and running again, and they had no financial resources with which to do it. So this, as this showed itself throughout the war, more and more militiamen were, were evading uh, the draft, if they could. Uh and what was the on that, if if a militiaman decided not to show up for mobilization, the worst that would happen under state law is that a sheriff would uh, bring them before a judge and the judge would fine them. Well, if the sheriff or the judge were federalists, then that militiaman got a slap on the wrist. He paid a small fine, or he didn't pay the fine, uh, and he was excused from it. And he basically got away from with evading militia service altogether, but his neighbors had to, who, who decided to play citizenship by by the rules. They went forward for those 90 days, and and with all of and risking uh, death or uh, uh, wounding, while other people were evading service. Another thing that was going on is that you could buy a substitute. State law said that every person in the militia had to serve once uh, before they could be called forward a second time. So if you were wealthy enough, and Tompkins wrote against this. He says we've got laws that allow the wealthy to evade service. If you're wealthy enough, you can uh, hire a substitute to take your place in the militia. So you pay that substitute, and then that substitute collects, if he can, he collects uh, his pay uh, for his militia service. So some people were lining up to serve again and again in order to collect these, these, uh, payments as substitutes. But again, the social result of this is that once again, if you were wealthy enough, you didn't have to fight.
2: Yeah. Reading all that, it makes it surprising that the, uh, Government was able to, uh, that the military was able to uh, stage the offensive operations. They were able to in uh, 1813. I was wondering if you could perhaps describe the course of the war over that year and some of uh, what the you know military station in New York, New York militia did during that uh, full first full year of the war.
1: Okay, good. The war starts off with a raid on York. York is uh, modern-day Toronto. And there are uh zeppelin Pike uh leads the the troops on the ground in this raid uh, so they cross Lake Ontario, they outnumber the British defenders at York, and the Canadian militia turn out to defend their city and Pike is leading a relentless attack towards uh the center of the city and uh he stops for a moment to bring the troops online. Well, the British commander at this time had decided to uh, uh, to get his regulars out of York. He didn't want the regular soldiers, which are fairly few in number in Canada at this time, so he turns over defense of York to the militia. And uh, and in the garrison, he's got a very large magazine where all gunpowder is uh, is stored, and he has his engineer. Uh, fire the, uh, uh, the magazine, and the explosion is like a, a five-kiloton uh, nuclear weapon. It uh, blows the top off the magazine, so we have stone, stone and timber just raining down on the American army as it is lining up to assault uh, the British fort there. And in that, uh, nearly 100 Americans are killed or wounded. To include Zebulon Pike. Now, after this, the Americans go on to occupy the city. the The troops are very angry, as you might imagine, at the British using this unorthodox weapon. And as far as they're concerned, it's a devil's weapon. And in the days of occupation afterward, the someone is burning the uh, capital buildings because York is the provincial capital of Upper Canada, Ontario. Uh, these buildings are just wooden, uh, wooden structures, but nonetheless, the two buildings, someone is burning them. Uh, the Canadians, of course, blamed it on the Americans. The Americans said no, it wasn't them. Uh, to this day, no one really knows who set fire to the buildings. But this now leaves an, an opportunity for the British to retaliate, and, and they're going to do that against uh, 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 building structures, mills uh, in New York State, and, and that will carry on throughout 1813. Immediately after that, uh, the Americans attacked Fort George, which is at the mouth of the Niagara River. It's directly across the river from Fort Niagara. They want to open up the Niagara River uh, for use uh, uh, to transport uh, supplies uh, through to Lake Erie. Now, this uh, attack here is just a tremendous success due to Army-Navy cooperation, In in landing it it looks like D-Day. The American boats are coming right up to uh, an embankment. The British are on top of the embankment, firing down at the boats. But nonetheless, uh, the Americans push them away from the uh, 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 shore and capture Fort George. Now, part of the significance of this is that when the British evacuate Fort George, they also evacuate the entire Niagara River. And so Oliver Hazard Perry goes to uh, Buffalo, uh and there's a navy yard there and there are five warships that have been uh sheltered uh in in a s- small harbor near buffalo that uh that could not escape because the british owned fort erie directly across from buffalo so these boats have been these warships have been locked up for the duration and perry moves them upstream uh on uh, the Niagara River, and into Lake Erie, and he brings them to Erie, Pennsylvania, and these are going to join his uh, flotilla that wins the Battle of Lake Erie uh, a few months later. Now, while the Americans are at Fort George and the American Naval Squadron is there supporting them, the British, out of Kingston Harbor on Lake Ontario, raid Sackett's Harbor. Sackett's Harbor is uh, uh, the big shipbuilding facility about about 35 miles away in New York, uh, because there's a large American frigate being built there. And so while the American Navy is gone, the British raid, and they come very close to capturing uh, uh, the shipbuilding facilities there at Sackett's Harbor. Interestingly enough, as the British raid, the British forces are closing in on the uh, the harbor, Uh, The U.S. naval commander left in charge there while the the American fleet's away, he thinks that the British are going to be there and capture this this frigate being built. So he sets fire to the warehouses, and he sets fire to the frigate. And then they discover that the British have withdrawn from the attack. The British commander doesn't think he can make his way all the way to the harbor. The British pull back, and now the Americans have to put out these fires. And it delays the shipbuilding uh, effort there at Sackett's Harbour. Now, uh, let's return quickly to the Niagara frontier. The Americans now have won Fort George. They've cleared the Niagara River. And they want to strike out from uh, Fort George and uh, take on the British forces that, uh, that managed to escape. Well, there's two battles, one at Stony Creek and one at Beaver Dams on the Niagara Peninsula, where the Americans are just uh, uh, basically crushed, uh, defeated by British forces. And so the American army withdraws to Fort George, and the British have a loose siege of the fort, and they're skirmishing every other day. But the American army basically owns a, a, a couple square miles of Canada, and that's it. So for all of their effort, that's that's where they are. Now, at the end of, uh, towards the end of the campaign season the Americans, uh, the War Department, James Madison, decide that the next effort really needs to be aimed directly at Montreal. So the Americans send uh, regulars from as far south as Virginia uh, moving up to New York. And one American force is stationed at Plattsburgh. Another American force uh, is stationed at Sackett's Harbor. And these Two will make a joint effort uh, to close in on Montreal. <clears throat> now, there's 4,000 troops at Plattsburgh under the command of Wade Hampton, who's a major general and a uh, Revolutionary War hero. Uh, he tries to fight his way to Montreal. He gets about halfway there, and he's stopped by Canadian militia. While that's going on, General James Wilkinson at uh, Uh, Sackett's Harbor has a force of 7,000 regulars. He puts them in over 100 boats, and he sails from Sackett's Harbor down the St. Lawrence River, heading towards Montreal. They stop at a series of rapids. Uh, He takes his uh, troops and puts them on land to lighten the boats while the boats can navigate the rapids. And a very small British force coming out of Kingston approaches the American army from the rear at a place called Chrysler's Field. And in that battle, even though the Americans vastly outnumber the British, it's British uh, uh, tactical skill uh, in the face of poorly trained regulars that defeats Wilkinson's army. And Wilkinson and Hampton both bring their forces back into the United States. So... Towards the end of the war, the attempt at Montreal, utter failure, and the American forces at Fort George evacuate. They were to move to Sagitts Harbor to help James Wilkinson's army. Now, they don't arrive in time to help the campaign, but Fort George is now abandoned, and the Americans fall back into Fort Niagara and the Niagara frontier. But the regulars are gone, and now there's just militia, a few hundred militia, And the British commander uh, on the Niagara Peninsula decides to uh, retaliate against the Americans. And he has about 400 uh, native warriors along with uh, about 1,500 regular troops. They capture Fort Niagara in a surprise attack, and they bayonet uh, uh, most of the American defenders, uh, those who aren't, aren't captured. And then, between the native warriors and the British, they traveled down the 37 miles of the Niagara frontier, and they burn every single structure except one house in Buffalo. So in a matter of two weeks, houses, barns, shops, uh, stores, everything is burned to the ground except that one building. And here it is in December, and the 6,000 Uh, New Yorkers living there in Niagara County on the Niagara frontier uh, are scared uh, certainly of the Native warriors because they remember all the stories from uh, fighting uh, uh, the Indians during uh, the American Revolution. And sometimes with just the clothes on their back as they hear the war whoops entering the village, they head into the forests of western New York heading towards the Genesee River and thousands of them now evacuate the frontier. Uh, some of them will return in the spring of 1814, uh, uh, but many of them are, are, have left the frontier for good. And so the Niagara, folks on the Niagara frontier in 1814 have to start the uh, rebuilding. Now, here's where Governor Tompkins comes in again. He jumps on the state uh, assembly to send money uh, to the Niagara Frontier to help the people who want to rebuild to rebuild. So he's making state loans and state grants available to them, uh, and he even funds uh, an Iroquois village, uh, a Tuscarora village, and he makes sure that they have money so that they can return to their uh, their native ground there and, and rebuild their uh, their village. And it isn't until later that the federal government jumps in and starts playing uh, paying. Uh, claims for the destruction from the uh, British attack. So anyway, by by the end of 1813, this is now the first full year of the war, the privateering effort to destroy British commerce has been completely bogged down, partly because the British are now blockading the ports on the Atlantic coast. So while a privateer could get out onto the ocean and capture a British cargo vessel, a merchantman, there was no place to bring it because you had to bring it into a court to get the, uh, uh, the claim uh, condemned to, to collect your money, your half of the, uh, of the money. So a lot of privateers, uh, a lot of folks who were privateers decided that there was no longer any there, and they left the privateering effort entirely. Now, thousands of privateers are being captured on the high seas by the British and the sailors are going into prison camps in Britain. New York City is all but closed to commerce. There's a fairly tight blockade of the city. Now, uh, part of the problem with that is that farmers who are bringing their, their flour and other foodstuffs into New York to sell to other cities along the Atlantic uh, can't, can't get out of the harbor. And the coal, the Virginia coal at the time, that is needed in New York City to, uh, to get through those New York winters, that's not arriving. So the poor people that can't afford the coal that, that is av- available uh, pretty much have a very cold winter at the end of 1813. There's a shipbuilding arms race on Lake Ontario uh, between Kingston and Sackett's Harbor, each side trying to... Uh, Get a larger squadron to finally get control of the of the, uh, of the lake. Uh, the Niagara frontier is a is just a, a major human tragedy. Now, what's going on in in Europe is fateful for the course of the war. Madison had and Congress declared war at a time when the British were involved with fighting Napoleon, and it was an existential battle. Uh, and it had been ongoing for uh, for a dozen years. And uh, what the Americans had hoped to do was win the war while the British were occupied fighting the French. Well, in 1813, Napoleon loses the major battle at Leipzig, and he withdraws from Europe, and he pulls into metropolitan France. So he is now losing the war. Uh, Wellington... Arthur Wellesley uh, has now forced the French out of Spain and Portugal and pushed them back into France. So it's clear that Napoleon and the French army are pretty much on the ropes. It's now a matter of time before uh, Britain and its allies in Europe are going to win that war. So the window that Madison needed, the window to win the war, was closing very rapidly and America was no closer to winning the war than uh, it had been at the end of 1812.
2: Nor was America that much more united, because it's one of the things I thought was really fascinating in your, in your uh, book, which was how you're describing, we think of war as sort of a, 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 a bipolar conflict. You know, you have one side and another side, and the two sides are fighting each other. Yet you're describing how there is so much uh, intertwined conflict. Uh, uh, interactions there that these farmers who have their uh, goods uh, in, in uh, New York Harbor don't really consider it uh, treason to sail out to the British ships that are uh, prohibiting their trade and selling the goods to them, which actually has the effect of perpetuating this uh, th- this uh, constraint of trade. Or how you would have these personal relationships uh, on the frontier from these families that had interacted for years and how this ends up having the effect of of facilitating intelligence uh uh, operations for both sides uh, on the conflict
1: exactly the madison and jefferson had really uh overestimated the sentiments of the american people what they were hearing was complaints about how britain was treating america during this period but these sentiments did not rise to the level where a, a farmer would enlist in in the service and leave his farm for years, uh, and there were uh, uh, out of work Americans uh, who did enlist in the service, but never in the numbers needed. And and you're exactly right. Uh, there's a big there's a big difference between uh, thinking that Britain needed to back off on how it treated America and being willing to actually take a musket off the wall and go out and and, and shoot the British and, and, and risk death or, or, or wounding. That was a line that a lot of Americans weren't willing to cross. And if you are anti war, then it's it's just a small step uh, to bring to, to to throw to buy food somewhere, put it in a rowboat, take it out to a British ship in New York Harbor, uh, and sell it captain there That's that that's a small step so again the smuggling is uh, uh on lake champlain is just outrageous uh in fact the british know that the british army that's being deployed to canada canada can't support them there's not enough uh food in canada to feed tens of thousands of british troops and sailors they're getting their cattle from new york and vermont and American officers are reporting that the cattle are just knocking paths through the forests to cross the border into, uh, in, into Lower Canada. Uh, in fact, there are stories where Americans would bring uh, cattle right up to the border, uh, and the Americans would leave the cattle on the border. They would go to a tavern, have some rum or beer, an hour later return to the cattle. The cattle, of course, would be gone but there'd be a bag of money. So they didn't officially trade with the British. They had plausible deniability, I guess. Their cattle wandered away, but but they were paid for the effort. Now, is, uh, what, what now is driving the, the, the train of the war is uh, when Napoleon is finally defeated, the British have hundreds of warships, Tens of thousands of trained, experienced troops. And they are now going to turn these troops on America, literally to punish America, because as far as a British uh, uh, citizen is concerned, America has stabbed them in the back while Britain is fighting the war for all of humanity against the great ogre Napoleon. So British, so the British people uh, are putting a lot of pressure on their government to to punish America, and this is shown uh, most starkly in the negotiating demands that the British are making in 1814. So America has a delegation over in uh, in Ghent, uh, in the in the country that is now Belgium, was in Belgium at the time. Uh, waiting on the British to show up. Well, when the British show up for negotiation, they have two major demands. The first one is the creation of an Indian buffer state north of the Ohio River. Now, what Britain is demanding as a sine qua non is the creation of this buffer state. All American territory north of the Ohio, which is the state of Ohio and Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin, did that be turned over to the Indians, with the understanding that the British will administer it? Well, there's tens of thousands of Americans living in that land, and they are going to be dispossessed and have to return to America or become British subjects. Uh, the British did this for a couple reasons. The, the major one, I believe, is that they wanted to capture the entire fur trade from that area that uh, the fur trade had been shared between the Brits and the, uh, the Americans, and the Brits wanted all of it. And this would do this, and this would also uh, bottle up the Americans on the east coast and the south, and presumably uh, prevent any wars in the future. But to make sure there would be no war for America in the future, the British also demanded that all the American naval forces on the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain would be removed, and all fortifications on the shorelines of the Great Lakes would be removed. So it would remain American territory, but there would be no warships and, uh, and no fortifications. And this would mean that the Americans would have to start from... Uh, from tabula rasa. They would start with nothing if they wanted to invade Canada any time in the future. Well, the Americans rejected that, but that's what they were facing now in 1814, that strategic situation.
2: You describe how one of the consequences of the ongoing war is that it solidifies a lot of public opinion behind Tompkins. You describe this in terms of the elections of 1814, where the Federals take a real drubbing, uh, that the, that the Republicans uh, are able to cl- uh, take the uh, assembly so now Tompkins finally has that united political backing that he needs to wage the war how does he take advantage of what what is uh, what, what does the uh, what sort of operations take place in 1814
1: well he has one thing that he's always wanted uh, and that was a state force that would be a permanent structure not not the militia he wanted to create state volunteers uh, that would not be under necessarily under federal control, and the assembly finally gives him that authority. So now he can enlist people who want to fight for a year, and they're directly under the the, the governor's control, and therefore he doesn't have to go through the 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 grave difficulty of mobilizing. Uh, thousands of militiamen every 90 days and moving them to the frontier because there were there were gaps in coverage. There were times when the one group of militia, their 90 days was off, and, and they marched home, and it was weeks before the next group would, would show up, which p- provided the British with opportunities to conduct raids uh, uh, across the border. So that was one of the things that he uh, saw as necessary, and he was in train of, of, of getting that accomplished. Now, of course, the war is going to uh, end before that can be fully implemented, but he's on the road to doing that. And he gets a state assembly to fix some of the militia laws so that uh, the militia can be held under tighter discipline if they decide to try to evade the draft, for example. Uh, He can put more of of his people in uh, uh, positions of authority, Uh, the state government, uh, upwards on 15,000 state positions, everything from militia officers to sheriffs. The, The mayor of New York City is appointed by a council. He's not elected. So the governor now has greater control of putting his people into positions of power within the state government. So had the war gone into... Uh, uh, 1815, the state would have been in much better position uh, to to support the war effort. Uh, So I guess for the the sake of the war in James Madison, it would have been nice uh, if the state assembly had fallen to the Republicans rather than the Federalists uh, in 1813 rather than
2: 1814. So is there, do we see the same level of Combat on the frontier in eighteen fourteen that we do in eighteen thirteen, or does it shift dramatically as the uh, situation uh, for the British and the uh, and and New York change?
1: Well, the I call eighteen fourteen the crisis. Uh, The British uh, send a large uh, number of soldiers into the Chesapeake. We know that in August there's the Battle of Bladensburg and the burning of Washington D.C. They occupy 100 miles of the coast of Maine with every intention of incorporating that into Canada at the at the end of the war. Uh, they put 10,000 troops at uh, at Montreal. Uh, to move south and to clear the Americans out of Plattsburgh and clear the uh, American Naval Squadron off of Lake Champlain, and they start moving uh, troops onto the Niagara frontier. The l- One of the longest campaigns, and certainly the deadliest campaign of the war, occurs on the Niagara River in 1814, When an American army under Jacob Brown, a New Yorker, uh, one of his subordinate commanders is Winfield Scott, uh, they will cross the Niagara River in July of 1814. They'll win the Battle of Chippewa two days later. Now, Chippewa is the first battle in which an American army, regulars, can stand up toe-to-toe with British regulars on a a, uh, in a flat open field with no terrain advantage uh equal numbers i think the numbers came within about 50 people and the americans win this is the first time in the war that this happens and after that the british aren't going to be able to defeat a an american regular army if the numbers are anywhere near close after the battle of chippewa uh... Jacob Brown moves uh, north on the Niagara River uh, and fights a very bloody battle at Lundy's Lane. Now, the people in the area know about Lundy's Lane, but that's not particularly famous in American history. The Battle of New Orleans is. Well, Lundy's Lane is the second bloodiest battle of the entire war, but that campaign under Jacob Brown uh, lasts for four months. Uh, The siege of Fort Erie, the Americans are bottled up in Fort Erie for a while, uh, about a month. And there are two major attempts. Well, one attempt by the British to break into Fort Erie, and then one attempt by the uh, Americans to break out of Fort Erie. Uh, And uh, again, an extremely bloody fight. And the Americans basically have uh, opened up the Niagara frontier, for about four months, and they only returned to New York uh, in November uh, because wintering uh, in New York was going to be better than uh, wintering in some broken-down forts uh, in Canada. So at that point there, American, the American regular army shows that it's the equal to those British troops that are, that are stationed in, uh, uh, in Canada. But the crisis uh, actually is a battle for Plattsburgh, in September of uh, 1814, 10,000 troops are now leaving uh, Montreal, heading south to Plattsburgh. There's only about 2,500 American regulars in Plattsburgh under General Alexander McComb, another New Yorker. Uh, the British will surround, the. in fact, they'll clear most of the village of Plattsburgh, and the American army is holed up in a little peninsula between the Saranac River and uh, 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 Plattsburgh Bay, uh, and the British will attempt to force them uh, uh, to destroy the American army there. It, it's outnumbered about uh, about three to one. The American army under Macomb is, is utterly trapped. They're determined to defend themselves. They built three fortifications there, but there's no way out. If the British attack on the south then the Americans have a river on the west, and they've got a bay on the east, and there's nowhere near enough boats to take them off. So it's a pretty desperate uh, affair for the Americans. Now, what gets the Americans towards victory here is that the British naval squadron, uh, coming down the Richelieu River, entering uh, uh, Lake Champlain, uh, tries to uh, attacks the American naval squadron under Thomas uh, McDonough in, in Plattsburgh Bay. And in the Battle of Plattsburgh Bay, the Americans manage to pull off uh, a victory. And in doing so, the British commander, who is poised with his land forces to attack Macomb in his trapped position, decides to call off the attack, and he returns to Montreal. So in a matter of uh, seven days in September, there are three major fights which the Americans win. On September 11th, they win the battle for Plattsburgh, which means that they keep Lake Champlain into, into 1850. In September 13th and 14th, the Americans uh, defend the city of Baltimore, Fort McHenry, the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, they defend the city of Baltimore, and the British are forced uh, uh, back into uh, Chesapeake Bay. And on September 17th, uh, the Jacob Brown and the American forces break out of Fort Erie and start uh, pursuing the British army. Now, how these seven days change the war is this. The British government, the ministry, asks the Duke of Wellington, who's their most famous general, most successful general, to take command of the American forces in, in North America to continue to punish the Americans. Wellington is now the British ambassador in Paris. The Allies are occupying Paris. Uh, the British ministry wants him out of Paris because there's been threats to his life and, the, and they're not willing to lose uh, uh, Duke Wellington. But Wellington writes back and he says, if you want me to go to Canada to command, I will go. He says, but the problem is there is not a commander. The problem is you can't control the water. You've lost Lake Erie. You can't win in Lake Ontario. And you've lost in in Lake Champlain. And you really don't control the St. Lawrence River or the Niagara River, which connects the Great Lakes. And until we can control the water, we cannot win this war. We won't lose it, but we cannot win it. And then he goes on to say, As good as the British forces have been in in North America, at this stage of the war, Britain only owns a little piece of Maine, but the Americans still have an army on the Niagara Niagara River in Canada. Britain cannot claim any American territory. So your claim of all the land north of the Ohio River is really a, a, a pipe dream. You haven't had the military victories to do so. Well, the ministry takes this all uh, into account. They they see the strategic analysis, and and they come around to believe that it is exactly as, as Wellington has said it was. So they send new instructions to the negotiating team in Ghent, and they drop all the demands for land. The Americans jump on that in the negotiations, and they sign the treaty before the British can reconsider it. <laughs> and this leads to the treaty being signed on Christmas Eve uh, in 1814. So this, 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 these seven days in, in September uh, end up being the, the turning point of the war.
2: So what is the legacy of the war for New York State and for the major people involved with it? Yeah, as you described, Daniel Tompkins, uh, you know, he does go on to become vice president of the United States. But he has a a pretty miserable life, as you described it. A lot of it has to do with the sacrifices he made during the war itself.
1: Well, right. Uh, There... The, the uh, government, the War Department, sent funds directly to the governor, assuming that the governor would pay off all uh, federal debts within the state as the militia is being mobilized and as uh, uh, transportation is being paid for to move troops to, to the frontiers. Uh, the federal government is broke. And the state government is willing to, to some level to, to do that, but there is no uh, uh, central accounting, and Tompkins took that on by himself. So he is paying out of state funds, and when he can't get uh, state funds, he's paying out of his own, uh, his own funds to make sure that the militia moving to the frontier has enough money to buy food along the way, because the federal government isn't, isn't supporting them. And he's a very poor accountant, so after the war, when he's trying to put together what what New York State owes him and what the federal government owns New York State, uh, he doesn't have the receipts he needs. Now, he's always been a drinker, uh, probably starting with his uh, his days at Columbia, uh, and uh uh, and for the social aspects of it, because that's what people did when they when they did negotiations, they you know, they drink uh, but but he's an alcoholic. Uh, and when he goes into this financial despair of of owing thousands of dollars to the state and to the federal government, uh, uh, he drinks entirely too much. So while he is vice president, uh, he's not a particularly active vice president. And ultimately, uh, and, and during the war, he's thrown from his horse. Uh, it's an injury that he never really recovers from. Uh, and uh, uh, and so he's going to end up dying uh, within a few months of, uh, of completing his eight years as vice president. Mm-hmm. Now, what this means for the nation is that... Uh, even that the end of the Napoleonic Wars has brought about the situation that really corrected all the problems that America had with Britain. Britain is demobilizing its navy. It no longer needs to seize sailors on the high seas. It has no desire to stop cargo vessels. In fact, Britain wants commerce with the United States. So it's not going to seize cargo vessels. And Britain backs off from supporting the Indians uh, in the West. The Indians are really the losers of this war. And because of the battles of 1814 that the Americans won, Britain, and indeed much of Europe, is just a little less contemptuous of the United States. Remember, United States is the largest, in fact, really the only democratic republic in the world. Everything else is a monarchy. So even though the British and uh, Europeans sneer at a Republican form of government, they're just a little less contemptuous of the United States, and they increase trade with the United States. Now, within the United States, the American people hear of the uh, Battle of New Orleans, in which the British are absolutely crushed. And shortly after that, the peace treaty arrives to be ratified by Congress. So in the American mind, they conflate these two. We defeat the British at New Orleans, and the war is over, therefore America has won the War of 1812. Well, not the case at all, but that's what enters into the American psyche. So there really is a new awakening of American nationhood born of the pride and the confidence of of having won uh, this war. In New York State, Whit Clinton, the former mayor of of New York, is going to end up being governor. And New York had been thinking about a canal connecting New York City and Albany and the Great Lakes uh, even before the war. And after the war, in a a feeling of confidence within the Assembly, within the state, within the Senate, uh, they go forward with this and they build the Erie Canal – Uh, which now allows all the farmers on the interior of the state to sell their produce in New York City. So now New York City is going to be fed from New York farmers in the interior of the state, and that had not been the case before. Uh, New York City just explodes in population now that it has a a pretty much secure uh, food supply, the port is open there's tremendous uh, transatlantic commerce and it's for a while uh, a couple years at least it's 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 a boom uh, now there'll be a depression in 1819 but but uh uh that was the immediate legacy of uh of the war in New York state oh and the federalist party pretty much disappears uh the federalists had uh, had been opposed to the war uh, New Yorkers realized that, you know, we we won this war. Uh, and so the federalists are just, they stay in state politics for a short period of time. They disappear at the national level. And the Republican Party now becomes the dominant party throughout uh, throughout the United States.
2: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Oh, and uh, because of this mountains of research I've done, I'm going to look at Winfield Scott's brigade. It's the brigade that won the Battle of Chippewa. It's uh, the most famous brigade to come out of the War of 1812. Like I say, there's the uh, the thought that the cadet gray uniforms came out of this battle. Winfield Scott becomes a major military character. He actually runs for for president, and and he's a uh, a general. Uh, the commanding general of the U.S. Army right through uh, into the American Civil War. So he, he's fairly famous in American politics, but as it turns out, the officers in his brigade go on to do just marvelous things. By and large, they're retained in the army after uh, the army's demobilized after the war. Uh, many of them make it into the war with Mexico, and they make tremendous contributions. And a lot of these officers who leave the army at the end of the war, go into uh, politics, or become community leaders, and they make a major contribution to the United States as well. So this book will be, uh, the working title is uh, uh, Great Doom, Winfield Scott's uh, Brigade in the War of 1812, and it's going to trace the officers and the enlisted men, as much as we know about them, uh, before the war, during the war, at the uh, four-month campaign on the Niagara River, and then what they do after the war and their contributions to, uh, uh, to the nation. So anyway, that's my next project, and I'm deep into research on that.
2: Sounds like a fascinating book, and I hope that uh, when you complete it and it's published, that we could uh, have you back on the podcast.
1: That would sound great.
2: Well, uh, Rich Barbuto, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mark, and you too.